Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hello, this is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you. Again, I don't see myself. I'm just going to have to assume that the camera is working. Um, this is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario on the webyeshiva.org Facebook Live channel. And I hope that you can see me. If not, at least that you can hear me. We are studying Morenavuchim. Um, and uh, we are today going to be beginning chapter 36. Um, and um, I noticed that Rabbi Sachs just posted the source sheet. Rabbi Sachs, if you can see me or you can hear me, I hope that you'll um, post a message just to indicate because my camera seems to is dark. I don't know why that is, but it's there seems to be some indication that I am recording. In any event, we are up to chapter 36. I would like to point out that uh, the continuity from our previous chapter Last week we did chapter 35, and we observed that there are three things that the Rambam felt that even though there is a great difficulty, okay, thank you, thank you, Rabbi Sachs, I hear you clearly, great. Even though there is a um, uh, there is a great difficulty for the vast majority of humankind to gain a perfect knowledge of God, there is nevertheless an a an expectation that, thank you, Brian, there, there is nevertheless an expectation that every human being has at least a modicum of understanding, There's a and, and there's even a legal requirement for the Jewish people specifically, and perhaps this extends to non-Jews as well, to have the following knowledge of the Almighty. There are three principles. Number one, the Rambam had said the doctrine of corporeality is an impossibility. You must believe that God is non-corporeal, that has, God has no physical uh, attributes at all. Number two, uh, God has no uh, comparison. There's no way to compare God in any way to any of the things that are created in this world by him. And any kind of semblance or resemblance or comparison that is made is really just a borrowed term. And number three... Um, and this is all, I'm just reading this from page 81 in the Pines edition from chapter 35. Um, he, God is not subject to any uh, affectation. That God is not subject to change or to being affected by anything um, because God is, is the most completely independent um, being. Okay, so those were the three things that the Rambam felt that is necessary for everyone to know. Now, he hasn't really explained this. And he also pointed out that when we talk about uh, God having certain attributes, he said that he would explain that in a later chapter. He's not going to be explaining this today, but there is something that he feels he needs to explain, and why the thing that he's going to explain today is why a belief in divine corporeality 
is so mistaken, is so wrong. And his conclusion of this chapter is going to be that it's actually worse, it is a worse crime against God to believe that he is corporeal than it is to worship idols, to commit the sin of idolatry. And we all know, based on the biblical texts, how criminal idolatry is in the eyes of the Torah. And so if the Rambam is telling us that a belief in God's corporeality is even worse than idolatry, so you see why this is the primary emphasis of the Moren of Uchim, why it is such an important thing for the Rambam. So let's get started in the chapter, and he states as follows. I shall explain to you, when speaking of the attributes, in which respect it is said that God is pleased with or made angry and wrathful by a certain thing. Um, I'm going to later on tell you, says the Rambam, what the Torah actually means when it says that God is upset with something or God is pleased with something, because these are all borrowed terms, and it doesn't, it does, it cannot be taken literally. That's not going to be the subject today. When we get to chapter 54 and onwards, those later chapters in the first section, that's where the Rambam is going to undertake those subjects. It is in this sense that it is said of certain individuals among men that God was pleased or angry with them or full of wrath. This notion is not the subject of this chapter, the subject being that which I am about to speak of. But let me tell you what I am going to speak about. Now, it's quite curious that the Rambam says, I'm not going to talk about that now. So then why did he bring it up? It could be that this is part of a continuation of what he had left us off with in the previous chapter. Um, and he just needed to tell us, um, since I've already spoken about the attributes of God or the way that he seems to be compared to human traits, he says, I know I've mentioned that and I have a responsibility to get to that, but that's not our subject for now. So let's go on. Know that if you consider the whole of the Torah in all of the books of the prophets, you will find that the expressions wrath, anger, and jealousy are exclusively used with reference to idolatry. The Rambam makes a claim that we have to think about for a moment to make sure that it's correct. But the Rambam writes that anytime you find the terms charon uh, af, which is God's flared nostrils to show his displeasure, to, to show his anger, or the word kaas, which actually means anger, or kinah, that God is jealous, all of those terms are used exclusively in connection with God's being upset or displeased with or angry with the practice of idolatry. And the Rambam is going to go through a full litany of psukim. We'll just run through this quickly. You will also find um, that the expressions enemy of God, oyev, or adversary, or hater, which is sone, um, and um, let's see, and, uh, and all of these other terminologies of being an enemy of God, they are exclusively used to designate an idolater. Thus scripture says, and here are some of the examples, um, uh, you when you serve other gods and so on, and the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you. This is from the Kriya Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema. If you worship other gods, then God's nostrils will be flared against you, or lest the wrath of the Lord be kindled, uh, because the Torah says, that God is a vengeful God. That God is revengeful. That lest God's anger be kindled against you. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Or to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. 
this all of these are in the handout that is in the Facebook group More Shi'ur in More Nevuchim, which you can easily uh, download. Uh, it's in a PDF form on that Facebook uh, group page. Um, all of the verses are here in Hebrew. Lahach iso is the term that you, that you um, that you provoke God or you anger Him. They have roused me to jealousy with the no God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and so on. Hain kinuuni velo el ki asuni So the word kina and kaas, all of them are found in these verses. For a jealous God, God is a, uh, and why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images? Um, uh, and uh, because of the anger provoked by his sons and his daughters, for a fire is kindled in my wrath, for he will take vengeance on his adversaries and repay his enemies. This is a pasuk not from um, uh, not from uh, uh, Deuteronomy, but here it's from uh, the book of Nahum, Kel Kano Vinokem Hashem, that God is vengeful and t- takes vengeance. Nokem Hashem Uval that God is filled with wrath. Nokem Hashem Litzarav, that God takes vengeance upon those who attack him. Venoter Hu and he will be watchful and uh, and repay those who are his enemies. And he repays, etc., etc., etc. All of these things have to do with hatred, enemyship, uh, anger, etc., uh, uh, jealous, and etc., etc. Now, this is all. These are all very good um, indications that God uses these terms in reference to idolatry. But a number of the commentaries ask the question: Is this exclusively for idolatry? We find that God gets angry at other things as well. For example, that uh, God got angry at Moshe, at the at the events at the burning bush, when Moshe tried to refuse to accept his assignment to be God's proxy to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. Uh, another example is where Aharon and Miriam in the Book of Numbers in Parshat Bahalotcha speak disparagingly about Moshe, and God gets angry at them. That God got angry and he departed. And so don't we find that God gets angry at other situations other than idolatry? This is a question that the Mephorshim asked. And there are three basic approaches to this answer. And one approach is the Rambam, even though he says it, doesn't mean that these terms are exclusively reserved for idolatry, but they all are in common that they refer to idolatry, and there's a special concentration of these words in reference to idolatry. A lot of it, but sometimes God will express anger in other times as well, but not as focused and concentrated as he is on idolatry. Another answer is that perhaps these um, events that I've just mentioned, such as the case of the burning bush, or uh, the case of Aaron and Miriam speaking disparagingly about Moshe, all are related in some way to idolatry because Moshe's refusal initially to accept his his assignment to be God's proxy was in some way a denial of God's omnipotence and omniscience, and that is a form of idolatry. Or in the case of Aaron and Miriam, perhaps their uh, lack of appreciation of Moshe's level of prophecy also has to do with uh, a lack of appreciation of what the prophetic experience is, a lack of understanding of God, a semblance of idolatry. That's another answer that the Aphodi tries to offer. Or, as the Abarbanel tries to say, 
that you will find the term charon af, anger, used in other contexts other than, other than idolatry. But to find all of these terms, charon af, kaas, kinah, um, oyev, sone, tsarav, all of these Hebrew terms which really pile it onto to, to this particular subject that is unique and reserved exclusively for um, idolatry. So the point is, is that you see that Hashem is extremely fixated on the evil of idolatry and how upset he is with it. Now, let's see where he's going with this. He says, now the books of the prophets only make this strong assertion because it concerns a false opinion attaching to him, may he be exalted. I refer to idolatrous worship. Okay, now this is the most important sentence in this entire chapter probably. And the point that the Rambam is making is, why is it that idolatry is such a terrible thing? What makes idolatry so evil and so abhorrent in God's eyes? And the answer is, is that it is a, an intellectual error that a person is making. Now, people make mistakes all the time. What's evil about making a mistake? Remember, for the Rambam, the entree to an attachment to God is via the intellect, is through the mind. The way that a person attaches to the Almighty and perfects his, his humanity, his whole, his whole raison d'etre, his whole purpose in being, is to have a perfect intellectual apprehension of the Almighty and his creation, of metaphysics and physics, of Maisa Merkava and Ma'asevereshit. To the extent that a person makes very distorted uh, intellectual apprehensions so that he's really not understanding God and he's not understanding his creation, that person is not only making a mistake, but they're committing a crime because they are failing to perform, failing to fulfill their whole purpose in being. Why idolatry is so such a terrible thing for the Rambam is because you are misunderstanding God. You are abusing the intellect which was given to you to have a perfect understanding of God, and you are distorting that tool, distorting that faculty to ascribe de divinity to other beings other than God. That is the crime of idolatry in a nutshell for the Rambam. And that is why it is so far, uh, uh, it, it, is, it, it, it um, earns God's ire, it earns God's anger, because God is essentially trying to, to communicate to us through the Torah. This is a horrible thing, idolatry, because it will make you lose the entire purpose of your existence. That's the point. And this is where the Rambam launches into an explanation of different levels of mistake, of intellectual misunderstanding that people arrive at. And he gets to an ascending hierarchy of sometimes you can make a, a minor error in judgment, and sometimes you can make a major error in judgment. The, the, the greater the object of your misapprehension, the greater the crime or the greater the, uh, the, the tragedy of what you are doing. And so let's take a look. He provides us with five different levels of hierarchy in making a mistake. So he says, for the deviation of one who believes that Zayid or any name, just uh, the, the Ibn Tibon translation says Reuven. If I have a friend whose name is Reuven, and I think mistakenly 
that Ruvain is uh, standing when he's really sitting, he says that's one level of mistake. He says that's a mistake in what is currently going on with an individual human being at a given time. Nunu, it's a mistake, but it's not a horrible thing. I thought he was standing. I recognize now that he's, that he's sitting. I made a mistake. He says that's unlike the deviation of him. Let's go on to the second level. Someone who believes that fire is under the air or water under the earth or that the earth is flat and other things of a similar kind. A person makes a mistake about physics, about the elements of this world, about an understanding of how the physical creation functions. A person thinks that the world, that the earth is flat. Clearly the Rambam lives before Columbus. He's in the 12th century, but it was clear to the Greeks and other people of sophisticated science that the world is a sphere. Everything is spherical in the universe, at least at this period in, in scientific inquiry. And the Rambam says, yes, are there people who believe that the earth is flat? Yes, there are. It's a nebuch on them. We feel sorry for them. That's the second level of error, because you're not just making a mistake about a particular component of creation. You're making a mistake about all of nature. That's the next level of error. And the third level of error, he says, and this second deviation from truth is not like the deviation of him who believes that the sun consists of fire or that the heavenly sphere forms a hemisphere and other things of a similar kind. He says, now you're getting into a higher level of misunderstanding because you're making a mistake about not about just about the physics of this creation on earth, but you're making a mistake about the celestial bodies as well. Now you're getting, you're going further above our planet, above our Earth, and getting into the celestial bodies. Let's say you think that the sun is made of fire. Well, is the sun? Well, we believe today that what's going on in the sun is nuclear fusion. Okay, but uh, the Rambam's belief was based on Aristotelian science that there is a separate element of heat that is emanated by the sun, but it's not actually a fire in the way that you and I think of fire. That's not a subject for now, but what he's really describing is, is that you don't fully understand how the sun emanates heat. You think it's just one big ball of fire and it's really not. Or if you believe mistakenly that the sphere that surrounds our planet is not a complete sphere, but rather it's a hemisphere. Now, without going too deeply into this discussion, there is a Gemara in Masechet Psachim that focuses on this very discussion. The Gemara explains that there is a machloket in the times of the Talmud, which is hundreds of years before the Rambam. There is a machloket among the sages of Israel and the sages of the secular world. The sages of Israel, both of them ask the question, what happens to the sun at night? Where does the sun go at night? And it's important to know that both opinions cited by the Gemara are not accurate based upon our 21st century knowledge of science. Both uh, the opinion of the wise men of the, of the Jewish world and the wise men of the secular world both believed that there is an opaque dome that surrounds us, an opaque sphere that surrounds us. This was the uh, belief of Aristotle as well, and we've talked about this a number of times already, that the planet 
that we live on is surrounded by concentric spheres. And these concentric spheres control, as they move, control the motions of the heavenly bodies that are embedded within those spheres. So imagine, if you will, a bunch of concentric beach balls that are constantly in motion and our planet is in the center. The Rambam felt that there were nine of these spheres based upon the science of his time. Now, what if a person were to mistakenly believe that instead of a, a ball, a sphere, moving around our planet, there is instead just a hemisphere. Instead of a full sphere, just a half of a ball uh, that covers where we live. It's sort of like the flat earth theory as well. Our planet is a disk and there's just a hemisphere covering it. The machloket, the dispute between the, uh, the wise men of Israel and the wise men of the other nations was as follows. Where does the sun go at night? The rabbis, or the wise men of Israel, were of the opinion that the sun comes underneath the hemisphere. They believe that our, the sphere that we look at and when we look up in the sky is a, just a hemisphere, not a full sphere. The sun creeps in under the rim of the hemisphere uh, and, and travels from east to west over the course of a day within the hemisphere. And at night, it goes outside the hemisphere from the bottom of the hemisphere and travels from west back to east, but above the hemisphere instead of below the hemisphere. And since the hemisphere is opaque, that's why you don't see the sun at night, because it's being blocked by this opaque hemisphere. And the uh, wise men of the other nations were of the opinion that, no, we don't live within a hemisphere, we live within a full sphere, and therefore the sun goes under us at night and then comes back up uh, in the morning in the east, not leaving the hemisphere, but because there is no ability to leave a full sphere, and therefore it goes underneath our planet at night and comes back up in the east. Now, the Rambam is essentially saying, without getting to, into too much detail about that Gemara, that if you mistakenly believe that there is a hemisphere instead of a full sphere surrounding us on the planet Earth, he says, you're making a third level of mistake. You're making a mistake not only about the, the, the laws of nature on our planet, but you're making an even broader mistake about the laws of nature in the cosmos as well. Now we get to the, first, the, the fourth level of error. The fourth level of, it, of error is that this third deviation from truth is unlike the deviation of him who believes that the angels eat and drink and other things of a similar kind. If you ascribe physical attributes to celestial beings, to angelic beings, which is the next realm of reality above the, the heavenly bodies of the sun, the stars, and, and the spheres that surround our planet. Now you're talking about metaphysical beings other than God. That's a higher level of error. And finally, the fifth level of error is about God himself. And it, that fourth deviation is unlike the deviation of him who believes that a thing other than God ought to be worshipped. And that's a mistake about God himself, that it is appropriate to worship beings other than God. Um, for whenever ignorance and infidelity bear upon a great thing, um, I mean to say upon someone whose rank in what exists is well established, they are of greater consequence than if they bear upon someone who was of a lower rank. When you make a mistake of understanding about someone of a lower rank, it is not as bad 
as if you make a mistake about someone or something that is of a higher rank. That's essentially the, the object or the subject of my error is uh, going to be increasingly more egregious depending upon the quality of that subject. So therefore, if I make a mistake about one individual person, mela, that's one level. If I make a mistake about God, that's a huge mistake. That's a much more egregious error, and it's the ultimate error that any human being can make in judgment with their intellect. Now the Rambam here uses two words um, that uh, Pines translates as ignorance and infidelity. Um, in the Ibn Tibon, the terms that are used are sikhlut, which is ignorance, and kfira, which is um, uh, an actual mistake of of a religious nature where a person is kofair, a person denies the reality of something. Ignorance, sikhlut, essentially means that I haven't formulated an opinion at all, and I have failed to use my intellect to properly understand something that I ought to be understanding. Kfira means that I am denying or coming up with a wrong estimation or understanding of something that is quite important for me to understand correctly. So one is not formulating an opinion in my intellect at all, that's ignorance, and the other one is the formulation of a wrong conclusion about the reality of something that's quite important. And therefore the Rambam points this out. By infidelity I mean belief about a thing that is different from what the thing really is, and by ignorance I mean ignorance of what it is possible to know. Accordingly, the ignorance of him who does not know the measure of the cone of a cylinder, or does not know that the sun is spherical, is not like the ignorance of him who does not know whether a deity exists or whether there is no deity for the world. In other words, these are things where you haven't made an inquiry. You have not investigated certain things. So you don't know the measure of a, of a cylinder or of a cone. You don't know whether the sun is a flat disk, or whether it's spherical in nature. You're just ignorant. But that's not as uh, um, egregious of a crime of ignorance as it is to not know whether there's even a God, because you haven't investigated issues of divinity. And obviously the Rambam's opinion is that even ignorance is criminal, because the intellect was granted to man to use properly and to elevate himself and realize his purpose in creation. Nor, he says, is the infidelity of him who thinks that the cone of a cylinder is half a cylinder, or that the sun is a circle, like the infidelity of him who thinks that there are more deities than one. That is, he believes something that is totally incorrect. He is, he is erroneous in his thinking. So if he thinks that the measure of a, uh, uh, of a cone is half a cylinder when it's really a full cylinder, or he believes that the sun is a disk, a flat two-dimensional disk, instead of realizing that it's a three-dimensional sphere, he says those are errors, those are kfira, meaning that they are um, misjudgments. I've thought about it and I've come to the wrong conclusion instead of not coming to a conclusion at all, but that's not as bad as coming to an incorrect conclusion about God, coming to the conclusion that there's more than one God instead of realizing that there is a, a unitary God. Now you know that whoever performs idolatrous worship does not do it on the assumption that there is no deity except the idol. In fact, no human being of the past has ever imagined on any day 
and no human being of the future will ever imagine, that the form that he fashions either from cast metal or from stone and wood has created and governs the heavens and the earth. So the Rambam here is giving us a very brief introduction to what the act of idolatry actually is, and he's giving us a historical backdrop as well. In other words, what he's saying is, is that don't think, and the Rambam has to provide us with a historical backdrop, because largely by the 12th century when the Rambam lives, idolatry is already passé. And idolatry has been passé for several centuries. So it's really difficult for mankind who is reading the Moranavuchim, even among the Rambam's contemporaries, to even understand. So what's so horrible about idolatry? I mean, after all, what is it really? What is, what is idolatry? It's uh, doing something so primitive, but what are you doing so wrong if, after all, we realize that it's ridiculous? So the Rambam's ex explanation is basically this. Don't think that anyone in history who has ever worshipped an idol has actually believed that there is some kind of godliness ascribable to the little statue that he's created, and that that's the exclusive God that governs everything that exists in the earth. He says that's ridiculous. Everyone knows, even the ancients knew that that was not uh, 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 an appropriate or correct belief. They weren't that primitive. They weren't idiots, right? Those who worshipped idols of the past. Rather, is it worshipped in respect of its being an image of a thing that is an intermediary between ourselves and God? So the definition of what really idolatry is, is that a person would create an icon, a totem, a symbol of something that would represent an intermediary force, something that God created, such as wind, such as fire, such as uh, a, even an anthropomorphized entity of power that was created by God to bring about some phenomenon or bring about some grace or favor to mankind. And the mistake of idolatry was to, instead of going directly to the only God who is the source of all of these things, go to those intermediary forces instead and try to curry favor from those intermediary forces instead of from God himself, who is the exalted and removed God and the source of everything. Um, and therefore, Scripture makes this clear by saying, who would not fear thee, O king of the nations, and so on. And this is these are Scripture from uh, Yirmiyahu and from Malachi, respectively, where it's clear that, that the prophet states that even among the other nations, everyone fears the God of Israel, because the God of Israel is the unitary, ultimate God of all. There was a recognition in the ancient world that there was some kind of reigning force above all of the lower gods. And the Ju Judaism's re uh, innovation was that even though there are other forces that exist that God has created, you have no right to worship those forces. You can only worship and appeal to God who is the creator of all. The other nations recognized that there was a God of all, but they felt that that God is too removed and exalted to really be attentive to our needs, and therefore we will go to only of the, those intermediary forces. As it says in Yirmiya, for example, chapter 10, Mi lo even among all of the other nations, they realize there is none like you, O God. And as it says in Malachi, chapter 1, 
Gadol Shemi Bagoyim, that that wherever you go, wherever the sun shines, my name says God is exalted among the other nations of the world. Everyone understands Ki Gadol Shemi Bagoyim Amar Hashem that my name reigns supreme. So what is idolatry? And therefore, idolatry is whereby scripture refers to what they regard at, regard as the first cause. That God is, and the, here the Rambam utilizes the Greek ascription for what they, what Aristotle called God. Ultimately, Aristotle did not use the word God. He used the word first cause or prime cause. That God is the source of everything else that exists. We have made this clear in our great compilation, and the Rambam here is making reference to Hilchot Avodah Zarah, the laws of idolatry. Uh, we don't have time to go into the text of Hilchot Avodah Zarah today, but what we wish to make clear is, is that the Rambam is telling you the mistake of idolatry is not to deny God's existence, but rather it is to believe that because God is too far removed and exalted to be attentive to the needs of mankind, we should therefore go to his created intermediary forces, like the god of air, the god of water, the god of this, the god of that, and appeal to them instead of going to the god who created all of those things. And we even say this in our prayers, Hashem, who is like you among the other forces, O God? So we clearly acknowledge that there's such a concept that exists among the nations, but, we, but the imperative of the Torah is those other intermediary beings or forces um, are not to be worshipped. You cannot; They cannot independently provide for mankind unless God wills it so, and therefore mankind may only turn to God for their uh, needs and desires and wishes. And we're going to have to hold it here for today because we're, we're r- running out of time. But essentially, what the Rambam's whole thesis for this chapter is, why is a belief in God's non-corporeality so important? It is because you are making the ultimate blunder in judgment, far worse than idolatry itself. Because at least if you were an idolater, you believe in God correctly, but you just believe that you can appeal to other of his, the other created beings that God created. But at least you're not blundering about God. But imagine you make a blunder about God himself. That's even worse. And that's something that we'll have to continue in next week's discussion. And I hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Shalom, everyone.